0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, let me, um, let me just put my cards on the table for you this morning. Um, I want you to experience pain this morning. I want you and I, I want us to to leave here this morning with some pain. And you're probably thinking right now, what kind of spiritually abusive weirdo for a pastor talks like that, right? Uh, you you are you might be thinking, I'm out of here. Okay, what happened to joy? You know, weren't we just talking about joy last week and rejoicing? Where did all that go? Look, last week we were. Right, last week we wrapped up the book of Esther and we and we said. As we wrapped up, our rejoicing is to be proportional to our rescue. Right? And that as Christians, we, we've experienced the greatest rescue, and therefore, we among all people, ought to have the most rejoicing in us. Okay, But listen, we ought to have the most joy alongside that joy, um, parallel to that joy, very specifically related to that joy and resultant even from that joy is pain. Pain. That's what we're going to see in these opening verses of Romans 9 this morning. The gospel produces pain. And and not pain like we normally think about pain, a very specific kind of pain. See, the gospel produces pain in people for people. That's what this text is about. It's about the, the heart of the rescued for those not yet rescued. It's about the heart of the found for the lost. And this is really critical for us to get as we start into this next section of, of the book of Romans um, t- together. See, I don't, I don't know what you know about Romans 9 through 11. There's a lot of people think this is some of the hardest stuff there is actually in the Bible. All right? Um, and it, it's not easy. It's not easy stuff. It's not easy to understand. And then when you do, it's not that easy to swallow. I, I mean, the, the doctrine of predestination is in here. That is not easy stuff. It's not. But listen, if we don't get Romans 9, 1 through 5 correct, if we don't get Romans 9, 1 through 5 into us, we'll never get the rest of 9 through 11 correct either. See, there are a lot of wrong ways to read and approach Romans 9 through 11. The right way to approach Romans 9 through 11 begins by really allowing this first paragraph to shape how we approach the rest of it. And so I want us to look at these first five verses of Romans 9 this morning under three headings. Point, pain, and privilege. Point, pain, and privilege. Paul makes a point in these verses. He makes a point in Romans 9 through 11, but the point that he makes isn't made without pain. He tells us about the pain here. He also tells us about the privileges, privileges of the Jewish people to be more specific, and the the privileges actually reinforce the pain. That's how this works. Let's look at the point See, the Apostle Paul has just finished writing Romans 8, hasn't he? One of the greatest chapters in the whole entire Bible. I love Romans 8. I'd preach it again right now if you'd let me, you know? It is so rich with the gospel. Paul has just said to the Christians he's writing to, there is no condemnation for you now. And there's never going to be. You're not in the flesh anymore, he's told them. He's told us, you're in the Spirit, like the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in you, (laughs) and he bears witness, the Spirit does, he bears witness that you are a child of God, you're adopted, you're a, a fellow heir of Christ, everything that is his is yours, you are united with Jesus. And yeah, there's still suffering in your life, right? But the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's coming your way. (laughs) The Spirit who dwells in you helps you in your weakness. In fact, He intercedes perfectly for you before the Father. For those who love God, all things work together for good all things he foreknew you he predestined you to be conformed into the image of his son he called you he justified you and he will one day glorify you he's for you and nothing right no one no thing nothing is going to separate you from his love nothing and i i don't know any better news than that i've been looking around for about 43 years haven't found any haven't found it You know, and it's not just, this is not just some good news amongst other good newses. This is not just gospel. Around here, we call it the good news, the gospel. And this gospel produces pain in people for people. But in order for us to understand that, we first got to understand that Paul, you know, he didn't, he didn't address this letter to us, all right? He addressed it to the Romans, and in case you're slow on the uptake, that's why the, the, this book of the Bible is called Romans, all right? Uh, Paul wrote this letter around the year A.D. 57 to the church in Rome, whom he had never met but planned to, and it was a group of Gentile and Jewish Christians there in Rome, That detail might sound like a small detail to us, but it was actually a very significant detail to Paul. It was a very significant detail to the original readers. See, the church in Rome, and therefore the original recipients of this letter, were a mix of Gentile and Jewish Christians. Most likely, it was mostly Gentile, with a smaller number of Jewish Christians there. And for the Jewish Christians... Listen, having just read or heard read what Paul had written in his letter up until this point, especially Romans 8, well, there's an elephant in the room, isn't there? And the elephant in the room is the great number of Jewish people who haven't trusted Christ for salvation, who haven't become Christians. This is Paul's point. When he says in verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, what he's saying is, I wish it were me instead of them. I wish it could be. I wish they weren't accursed. The original word there is anathema. It means doom. Excluded under a sentence of damnation. Cut off from Christ. That's how he describes the unbelieving Jews of his day. His brothers, he calls them. His kinsmen. Paul himself was a Jewish man, wasn't he? Self-described as a Pharisee of Pharisees. This is the point, church. A lot of Jewish people, the majority, we would even say, rejected the gospel. Paul knew this firsthand, didn't he? I mean, just turn left in your in your Bibles, like twenty pages or so. Go ahead and do it, Um, into Acts chapter thirteen. This is just one example. There's loads of examples of what I'm about to say here in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter thirteen, verse thirteen, Paul and Barnabas arrive at Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, verse fourteen says they went into the Jewish synagogue. And then a good chunk of Acts 13 deals with the message that Paul preached in the synagogue. But then look at Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 42. It says, as they went out, after they left the synagogue, after he preached this sermon there, he says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Acts 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. Remember Romans 1? Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and he quotes Isaiah 49, I made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Now, we read that. You read through the book of Acts. You might read that and just say, oh, okay, and move on. But Paul didn't read that and say, mm, okay, and, and move on. No, he was becoming increasingly aware of an elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that these were supposed to be God's chosen people, weren't they? I mean how do we put this all together? How does does this fit with God's promises that we find in the Old Testament? Didn't God promise to send the Messiah to Israel to save Israel, to bless Israel, and then through them, everybody else? Or just, just think back to the book of Esther, That we just spent the last month in. Just think back to, didn't we just see essentially that God will stop at nothing to preserve his people for his purpose, for his glory? Didn't they celebrate that year after year after year through Purim celebrating? We are God's people. He's preserved us. We read Romans 8 and these glorious gospel truths that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But it seems something has separated some of God's people, doesn't it? This creates a lot of questions. (laughs) Creates a lot of questions like, has the word of God failed? Hmm? Has he rejected his people did did he promise to do one thing and then end up doing something different did he overpromise and under deliver with israel did he just randomly decide to switch it wasn't working so he switched his love over to the gentiles Why are some people saved and others are not? Is God somehow unjust? Or maybe more relevant for us as Gentile Christians ourselves, is Romans 8 really true? Can it be relied on? Is he overpromising and going to underdeliver on us if some of Israel fell away? Can I Am I really as secure as Romans 8 made it out to sound like I am? <laughs> all of these questions are the colors and patterns painted on that elephant in the room. <laughs> and Romans 9 through 11 addresses them all. And it's not easy to understand, it's not all easy to swallow. But that's not the point today. The point is the first five verses of chapter 9. The point in the first five verses, quite simply, is not all Israel is saved. Many, perhaps we should even say most, are accursed and cut off from Christ, it seems. And this produces pain. It produces pain in Paul. Look at, go back to Romans. Look at chapter 9, verse 1 in Romans. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. First thing to notice here are the links that Paul goes to validate his sincerity. Right, he says it positively I'm telling the truth. He says it negatively I'm not lying. Parents have gotten these before other kids, right? I swear I'm telling the truth. No, I'm not lying he even none of my kids have ever done this but he even appeals to the conscience saying my conscience is not violated by me saying this but he also knows that his human conscience is fallible and so he adds that his conscience is illumined by the holy spirit why does paul go to such lengths here to validate his sincerity well possibly precisely because many suspected that he didn't feel any pain for the unsaved Jews at all Paul, after all, was considered a traitor by his fellow Jews. I mean, you go back and read Acts. Who's throwing the stones at him? Literally trying to kill him. It's his Jewish brothers, isn't it? He's throwing stones at him, just trying to knock Paul off and and, and kill him and dragging him out of the city at times, right? Probably while he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He goes to great length, doesn't need to validate the sincerity of what he says in verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. (laughs) Great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Listen to how some other translations render this just to let it kind of settle in a little bit more. Great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. the old J.B. Phillips paraphrase says, I feel very depressed, like a pain that never leaves me. Or the message paraphrase, it's an enormous pain, deep within me, and I'm never free of it. Church, Paul is a person in pain. And what I'm contending for is that the gospel produced that pain. In other words, reflecting on the glorious truths, the glorious gospel truths of Romans 8 also leads to the reflecting on the opposite truths for those who don't yet trust in Christ. They are condemned. There is, therefore, now condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus They're still in the flesh. Not indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Not adopted. No inheritance. All things not working together for good in their life. Separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Accursed. Cut off. To further express his pain, Paul adds in verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Like th- this is Paul saying <laughs> if I could somehow sacrifice myself for them, I would. The people who were trying to kill him and chase him out of town. One writer calls verse 3 a spark from the fire of Christ's substitutionary love. Martin Luther read this verse and said, it seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus did for us, isn't it? See, here in Paul... Not only do we see the heart of the found for the lost, we see the heart of Christ for the lost. The same Christ, the same Jesus who, in Matthew chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, Matthew records, like sheep without a shepherd. Hmm. Hey, if you're here this morning, and you don't yet trust in Jesus, what you need to know is that what Paul says he could wish that he could do, Jesus actually did for us. He was accursed. He was cut off, damned to death on that cross so that you, through him, could receive all the glorious gospel truths of Romans 8. And when you trust in him, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul's point, he's aware of the elephant in the room. There are a lot of his Jewish brothers and sisters who have not trusted in Jesus. It's a point he makes through pain. Lastly then, he talks about the privileges of his fellow Jews, which actually serve to reinforce the pain. Verse 4, they're Israelites. Paul doesn't simply refer to them as Jews, which is more of a national designation, nationality designation. He refers to them as the Israelites, a descriptor that they themselves use to describe their position in salvation history. And to them belong the adoption. A reference to Exodus four twenty two and other places where Israel's is called God's son, the glory, probably thinking about the manifestations of God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple, the covenants, the covenant of Abraham from Genesis fifteen, the Mosaic covenant from Exodus, the Davidic covenant from Second Samuel chapter seven, covenants through which God promised to bless His people, the giving of the law. For here are the Ten Commandments and the promises, all the prophecies of a coming Messiah. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Also men like Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David. Those who carried on the faith and passed on the faith. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ and Don't miss this. This is one of the most explicit declarations of the deity of Jesus in the whole Bible. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God. He's God. He's over all. He is blessed forever. Amen. Paul is saying that through this race, through this people, God came into the world. And the incarnation of Jesus and the very ones through whom Christ came, through whom they came, couldn't see that he came for them. And as Paul reflects on this, as he reflects on the privileges, all the things that ought to have prepared the Israelites to receive the Christ, all of God's faithfulness, all of the Old Testament really, all of it, and they couldn't see it. They rejected it instead. As Paul reflects on that, it reinforces his pain. The gospel produced pain in Paul for people. Now, I want you to think about who you know who has rejected the gospel. Anyone you know who has heard about Jesus and walked away from him perhaps even having, after having all kinds of contemporary privileges. We have a lot of contemporary privileges, don't we? Freedom to worship, coming to church, a billion different podcasts out there to tell you anything you want to know about them, being involved in a church, being a member of a church, you can even be a leader of a church, having the whole Bible to read anytime you want in a whole bunch of different translations like we just saw having a community of people maybe around you to walk with you and encourage you and pray for you and love you. Even when you got questions, even when you got doubts, there's a lot of privileges that we enjoy as contemporary Americans in the church, right? Think about someone you know who has rejected the gospel. Maybe for you it's a friend. A close friend. And in the mess and the mire of the COVID years, They walked away. A relative? A child? There's pain there, isn't there? When a child you've raised, maybe even the church a child that you have loved and and nurtured, a child that you've prayed over and for and with, maybe even a child that you taught the scriptures to, imperfectly, absolutely, be tried, when they turn and walk away, despite all the privileges, it's painful. Painful. If that's you, by the way. One of the things I want you to know that Pastor Adam does around here that's awesome is gather parents in our church of grown children who've walked away from the Lord or are not walking with the Lord. They just get together and they, they pray for those kids. They pray for each other. He calls it the prodigal prayer group. They meet, I don't know, every once in a while, quarterly-ish. And if you're not in that and need to be, can you come see me or Pastor Adam before you leave today? We'd love to connect you in with that group of people, a unique and shared experience within our body. All right. Who do you know that has rejected the gospel? Or take it one step further. Who do you know that's just indifferent to it? Or that's you know just an unbeliever in your life. Maybe you share the gospel with them, maybe you haven't yet. But th- think about it. A-, a parent? Siblings? A colleague or a neighbor? A friend? A classmate? Can I ask you just a real honest question? <laughs> when you think about them, do you experience pain? For them. Like, is the gospel producing pain in you for people? Like, is there a a great and bitter sorrow, an unceasing, continual, unending grief and anguish in your heart? Do you ever feel depressed, even? A pain that won't leave you. An enormous pain deep within you that you're never free from. Listen, if so, good. The gospel produced that. That's the heart of the found for the lost, which is really Christ's heart for them in you. And I know it's a, it's a painful thing, but listen, it is a good, painful thing. Can I just put another card on the table for us this morning, though? Almost every time I've ever read the book of Romans, and I come to chapter 9, verse 2, I am personally rebuked and convicted by it for my lack of pain. I don't know if that resonates with anybody else. If not, I'll just preach for myself for a little bit, right? Um, I don't actually like pain. You know? Um, I try to avoid it in my life. Uh, I've never woken up in the morning and thought, boy, if I could just experience a little more pain today, that would be, that's what I'm after, you know? Um, there's probably something deep and fundamental inside of me at a deep level that builds a little bit of a dam against the pain the gospel seeks to produce in me. I'm aware of that. And so I engage with unbelievers. I know lots of them. got unbelieving friends, people I know in my neighborhood, people I know through our neighborhood association, my kids' schools, places I frequent, family members. I'm not even afraid to talk to them about Jesus, talk to them about church, I'll pray for them. But I'm actually a little bit embarrassed to admit that I don't often feel great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. Sometimes I feel a sense of camaraderie with them. I enjoy them, I like hanging out with them, spending time together. I care about them in a general sense, you know have empathy for them, sympathy at times, but all of that actually comes very short of what Paul's describing here, doesn't it? Sometimes, and we can talk about it, sometimes, if I'm honest, <laughs> I feel indifferent towards them. Irritated by them. Irritated by their worldview? Or the fact that their worldview exists and has to exist alongside my worldview in this world? Annoyed? Frustrated sometimes at the decisions I see them making in their life? Impatient? See, I'm far too selfish to really sound like Paul in this text. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Christ? For the sake of others? (laughs) So what I do when I hit Romans 9, verse 2, I tell all that to God. He knows it all anyway. Not surprising him. He's not like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) I get honest with him. So much of prayer is just telling God what he already knows, right? Lord, I don't have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for this person. And I know the gospel ought to be producing that in me. I know that apart from Jesus, all the anti-truths of Romans 8 are true for him. And so would you break my heart, God? Would you create in me a great and bitter sorrow, an unceasing and continual anguish, pain for them? Now, why would anyone in their right mind pray like that? Who prays for pain? Well, we pray for pain because pain is a great motivator, isn't it? It's actually the flip side of love. That's what pain is. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says this. The context is different, but the point's the same. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's why we pray for pain. That's why I want you to experience pain to rouse a deaf world. See, Paul's pain, what did it do? It it compelled him, didn't it? I mean, this is the same Paul who we are about to read say things like, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? He is about to say, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I mean, Paul's theology here is striking. The, the title of chapter 9 in my copy of God's Word is God's Sovereign Choice. <laughs> he has really surrendered to the sovereignty of God in all things, including salvation. But he does not let his theology of God's sovereignty grow a cold heart to those who are not yet saved. He's full of pain. He also doesn't let that pain paralyze him. Paul's pain compelled him. Like in, Instead of ignoring it, which is what I like to do with pain, instead of ignoring it or altering his doctrine to negate it, Hmm? which is very tempting to do. He lived with it and was compelled by it and became through it a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No one preached the gospel and planted more churches in the New Testament than Paul. He was a man with a message on a mission. He knows he's been rescued and he has a heart for those who have not. And it compelled him. This is something I want to grow in, church. It's actually something I want all of us as a church to grow in. And so we're going to talk about it in our gospel communities this week. (laughs) Can you feel it, though? The pain? Or perhaps the absence of it? Is it lacking? And you're just now starting to acknowledge it. Both of those are good responses this morning. Evidence of God doing work in you. Evidence of a growing heart of Christ in you for those who are yet far from him. And oh, that we would be a people whom the gospel is producing pain in for people. And that God would use that pain as a megaphone to rouse a deaf world let's pray father we know we, we know your heart for the lost and we know it because we know your heart for us once we were not your people but now through jesus we've been adopted into your family we know we know what we've been rescued from we know what we've been rescued into. We, we know your love for us, your heart for the lost. God, would you create and deepen in us by your spirit that same heart? Break us of any spiritual aloofness or pride or indifference or spiritual sloth and produce in us pain. Gospel-loving, gospel-produced pain for those who are far from you. And help us to trust even more in your love for them. And the power of your gospel, which we're not ashamed of compel us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.